Hello and welcome to The Stack, with lots of highlights, including an interview with British Vogue Editor-in-Chief Edward Anningfo. Plus, we visit the offices of leading Danish men's title Euroman, and we preview Jakarta's Art Book Fair. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And a new season of The Big Interview kicked off on Friday. This week we heard from Monaco's Sophie Grove, who sat down with Edward Anningfo, a trailblazer in the fashion industry who currently serves as editor-in-chief of British Vogue. His new book, A Visible Man, traces his remarkable journey that's taken him from a military base in Ghana to one of the most powerful positions in fashion. Sophie began by asking Edward why he decided to write his memoir now. I mean, there is something to be said for turning 50. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always sort of trying to look forward, always about forward motion. But in my 50th year, I mean, I got married. We've been together for 20 years. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I started looking back at my life. And then I also saw that a lot of young people sort of see the end result. They see people like like me, like you, and they don't see the journey. So I just felt that it was important to let them know that the journey was as much about my failures as well as my successes, that, you know, you can always fall but pick yourself up so really it was for a new generation but also the fact that I was 50 and I was like owning my life so to say in the prologue you describe a moment you're walking your dog in the park with a friend yes. uh, the pandemic yes. has hit us but also the horrific death of George Floyd yes. has started to become apparent and is you know just on everyone's um, social media and yeah. around the world these two events almost collided. Yes. And in a way that also prompted your oh my decision God, yes. to write this memoir. Yes. I mean, I remember we'd been in lockdown for a while and George Floyd was murdered. And what really struck me was how all these young people from all across the globe sort of came out to protest. The police in the UK have killed people and are held unaccountable for. Look at the T-shirt. These are the names of people they've killed. How dare the chief of police across the country issue a statement saying they're in solidarity with George Floyd. They are disgraceful. They have and I just thought, my God, this is a generation, a really hopeful generation. And in that moment, I thought I could really tell a story, my story, just to see, to show people the power of possibility. So that was also another reason. And timing. And timing. <laughs> I want to go back to the very beginning of this beautiful memoir. You were born in Ghana, yes. in Takaredi, um, on the coast. And um, you, you, your father, Major Crosby um, Enifil, was um, you know, a military man who, who moved about quite a bit. But yes. the family was there living in a military enclosure. Tell me about that period, your childhood. Was this a happy time? I mean, all I remember was sort of all oh, these beautiful bungalows and just running from house to house in, in Takoradi and being with my siblings and, you know, when you live on a military base, it's very sort of very family oriented, so from house to house. Then we moved from Takoradi to Accra, which is the capital, to another military base called Burma Camp. And as I talk about in my book, 
um, Burma campus opposite the sea. And there was sort of a little hill with these sticks on. And, and we realized that, you know, that's where they sort of executed people. But when you're a child, everything, you normalize everything. So you'd be like on Sundays, we're like, oh my God, it's firing squad day. But essentially people would be dragged up and shot. It was very surreal, like growing up in Ghana, but on a military base, you know, and then eventually we moved to the town of Tema and things were a little more normal. I mean, it's so interesting the way you, you describe this kind of almost you know, beautiful lawns, very sort of elegant, clipped, yes, yes. sort of almost yes. sterile place. And then the contrast of this contrast. horrific yes. thing that you became habituated to. Yeah. Yes. Um, and very, very unusual for a child. Um, do you think that that haunts you at all today, or did you? Is it just that oblique child memory that you just ha- you just have me, just hovering there? I mean, for me, it's it's an oblique child memory. But growing up, I just realised, my God, how horrific it was. I mean, I remember I went back to Ghana before lockdown, and I took a drive to see where we grew up, and I looked across the hill where people were executed and. It was a tiny little hill, but when you're a child, things are so magnified, you know. So it's an oblique memory, yes, in my childhood, but it stayed with me. It really... And the book is dedicated to Grace, your mother. Yes, my mother. um, Who was a very unusual military spouse in a way. She (laughs) had a very successful um, fashion business, Mm -hmm. 40 seamstresses underneath her. Um, You know, she sounds like a woman with a lot of character, a lot of style. Mm. Um, and you assisted her as a, as a young boy, um, even attending fittings in the presidential palace. Yes. Uh, tell me about her and tell me about those formative memories. I mean, I always say my, mo- my mother made me who I am today. You know, from a very young age, I'd watch her sewing. You know, I'd watch her make all these incredible clothes, all these incredible women come in. People always talk about sort of diversity and inclusivity, but I grew up with cousins and aunts and my mother's friends, all different shapes and sizes. My idea of beauty came from my mother. It wasn't a specific Eurocentric style, but it was anybody could be beautiful. And she really showed me, you know, the most incredible things you could do with fashion, how women would feel so beautiful in just one dress, the right dress. Um, She also showed me if women didn't feel comfortable, what that was also like. She would take me everywhere. I was really her little, I was probably her favorite. (laughs) (laughs) But I learned about beauty from my mother, definitely. I mean, you know, I can tell from one little glance if you're happy, if a woman's happy, but those things came from my mother. You know, just being very attentive. And that's really helped me. Well, tell me about the move to London, because you talk about the executions and the change of power that happened after Nkrumah mm-hmm. came to power in, in Ghana. Lots of coups and eventually the family and, and their allegiances came you know, really under threat. Mm-hmm. And your dad left for London mm-hmm. and the family followed him shortly after. Tell me about leaving Ghana? I mean, you know, there we were running around the streets of um, Tema, and then we hear there's a coup, you know, Rawlings coming to power. An uncle of ours was executed, and my dad was gone from one day to the next. 
And we didn't really know how serious it was until we came home one day and my mother was like, all right, you're all going to London. And we thought it was an adventure. But it was so crazy when we landed in London. I mean, it was, it was like Disneyland in a way. You know, I'd never seen buildings like this before. I never, the weather was so cold, but you know, I come, I come from a, you know, we came from a country that was so hot all year round. And the most incredible thing was that everybody was white. We just come from a country where the majority of people were black. So for us, that was also something. But it was like, you know, Disney ride. I mean, we all crammed into two bedrooms, but it didn't matter. Because in Ghana, we all, you know, shared rooms anyway. One day you were on the tube and you were approached by Simon Foxton of mm -hmm. ID, who scouted you for a shoot. Tell us about that moment and how that shaped your career. I mean, I remember I was 16 and I was at Kingsway College. And before that, you know, I always had a big afro, huge glasses. And I remember asking my mom to get me sort of this new contraption that was out for the eyes, because I've never had great eyes. And it was contact lenses, the hard ones. So I remember throwing my glasses away and um, I was on the Hammersmith and City line heading to college and this man was staring at me and I just kept thinking, what does he want? And then the Baker Street, he gave me his card and it was Simon Foxton, one of the best fashion stylists of our generation, really. He worked for ID Magazine in Arena. And I remember going home and showing his card to my mother, and my mother wasn't so convinced. And you know, a 16-year-old, and really pestering her and pestering her, so she eventually called Simon. And before I knew it, I was working with Nick Knight on a photo shoot and Simon, and that was the beginning of sort of my modeling career while I was also at college. Really, my introduction into the fashion industry. And tell me about some of your breaks. I mean, you talk about your work, for instance, with Calvin Klein. And, you know, these two years of consulting and working with some of the greatest stylists and models we now consider to be supermodels. Yes. Back then, yeah. <laughs> they were really up and coming, people yeah. like Naomi. Tell me what you learned during those years. This was mid to late 90s. I learned that you could say so much about fashion through images. I learned that fashion had the power to, you know, to really affect change. And then watching my little friends like Kate Moss, I met when I met at the casting and I was 16 and she was 14 and just watch her grow into this incredible supermodel. And then I'm meeting Naomi sort of in the early 90s, you know, she started to do well. We were the same generation. We saw things in the same way. You know, we were all navigating sort of really grown up spaces. And the experience at Calvin Klein really taught me that, you know, what we were doing in London at the time, which they called grunge, had really caught the world's eye. And we just kept going, you know, every opportunity we got, we just brought each other along. Kate would bring me on jobs. Naomi would put me up for jobs and vice versa. So we really looked out for each other. You know. I mean, there was a critical moment you write about in the book when you, um, you, you, you launched the Seven Deadly Sins of Edward Enifil campaign mm -hmm. with Naomi and Kate Moss, and suddenly you were wheeled into surgery. Um, so those two, you know, the sense that work and your, your health, which you've been battling with mm -hmm. since you were a child because you had this sickle cell trait, yes. um, which, which you, you talk about in the book too. Mm. Um, so you were in and out of hospital as a child. Mm. You know, in a sense, 
there was a moment when you realized that health uh, had to come first. Yeah, you know, I was young. You know, when you're young, you, you think you can, you can overcome everything. You know, yes, I had sickle cell trait and thalassemia, and I should have been looking after myself better. But I was in my 20s. I thought I was, you know, invincible. But then you realize, no, you're not. And when I was wheeled into surgery, I mean, it was, this was many years later, you know, I was working so hard, getting on planes, all the things, stressing, all the things you're not supposed to do. But sort of having multiple sort of retinal detachments and spending days on end in, with my head facing down in dark rooms, I got to, so you really get to think. And I realized, my God, I really have to change my life. Tell me about 2016 when you received the most excellent order of the British Empire for your services to diversity in fashion. I noticed your father attended that. Was that really a moment of reconciliation with him? I mean, uh, receiving the OB was a great moment, you know. My dad, my father was so happy because here's a man who had to flee his country with six kids who, you know, we grew up with no money and there I was being awarded the OB. For me, it was more for him than me and, um, also, my mother had passed, and just watching how delicate he had been with her for the 15 years when she had a stroke, we started to sort of develop a relationship again, and it was really great to see him that night and how proud he was. And now, you know, we're in a better place than we were when I was growing up. You say this book is written for dreamers. Um, what's your message to young people reading this memoir? My message to young people is like, do not be afraid, be fearless, you know, believe in yourself. When they tell you you can't do it, just push through because if I can do it from with my background and what I've been through, most people can. So that's my advice. There was a highlight of Sophie's chat with Edward Enningfo. You can listen to the full chat on the big interview. Just go to monaco.com. We head to Denmark now. Monaco's Gabriele Delisanti, always in tune with the best titles out there. This time he pays a visit to the offices of a leading Danish men's title. It's called Euroman. I love the title. And their covers are pretty special too. Here is Gabriel's chat with the magazine's editor-in-chief, Christopher Dahi Ernst. It's late August and editor-in-chief Christophe Dahi Ernst is getting ready for the release of the September issue of Euroman, the magazine he's been at the helm of for over two years. The issue's black-and-white cover features a Danish modern-day philosopher who shares his take on how to navigate a changing world. Inside, the magazine's pages are packed with original photography and playful graphics. It's content ranging from long-form profile interviews to tips on what to wear, read and listen as the season turns. Euroman is Denmark's only title for men. It's a household name here, having been in circulation for well over 30 years. I meet Christophe at Euroman's newsroom in the outskirts of Copenhagen. His desk is piled with copies of varying magazine titles, novels and scribbled notes. We sit down in a quiet meeting room and I start by asking him what Euroman is for him. I have 
always read Euroman. It's always been sort of a mainstay in my life. I basically bought it since I was 15 years old. I've always had this idea that Euroman is your best friend's big brother who is able to tell you where to go, who you should uh, read about, what car you should drive, what watch you should look for, what's the film you want to watch the next, what should you listen to of music. And I think Euromans should be that authority in your life. We should be able to, to take people in their hands and show them in what direction they should uh, lead their life. I want Euromans to be a modern friend that is able to show you the good parts of life. I want to create original journalism that is um, both thought-provoking but also can be investigative. I want to be able to uh, not only tell people where they should go for dinner, but also what they should order off the menu. Since taking over as editor-in-chief, Christopher ensured the magazine remained a modern and relevant title. One that makes no compromise on outstanding photography and journalism, and one that, even more importantly, knows its readers and what matters to them. What we pride ourselves with is a really strong emphasis on the visual side, of course. I mean, our journalism is second to none, as I see it, and we are working every month a lot with the visual side as well. Create uh, outstanding photography, use the best illustrators that we can get our hands on, think about visual concepts for cover shoots, for photos in the magazine, and always avoid, of course, stock photos whenever we can, create original photography. Our art director is uh, one of the best in the country, if not the best, Thomas Bredesen. And I think it's important to constantly keep pushing, uh, I mean, typography, the way we lay out the magazine, and not necessarily start from scratch every month, but basically look at each uh, case in the magazine in a new way and how we can work with that to present it in the best way possible. We try to stay relevant by constantly following the zeitgeist in the country, both trying to give our readers what they want, but also trying to give them what they didn't expect. Our Euroman is, I think, looked upon as a modern magazine, as a men's magazine, as a magazine that has been here forever, which is both a blessing and a curse because, of course, it's nice to have a well-established brand that basically everyone knows. I mean, we never get a no if we ask someone if he wants to be on the cover of the magazine. But it's also something we, we should not rest on our laurels. We should constantly evolve, constantly develop, constantly ask ourselves to be better and to, I wouldn't say reinvent ourselves, but we should constantly change it a little bit to follow the way that society uh, evolves. Christopher acknowledges the risk of running a magazine that's too Copenhagen-centric. And while covering the capital's trend-defining fashion scene and exceptional gastronomic offering is key, he recognizes the importance of publishing a magazine that offers something for everyone across Denmark. Sometimes we're accused of being too uh, centric about Copenhagen, but I'm doing my best to be a magazine that is covering the entire country and that knows just as well what's going on in the remote parts of Jutland than what is going on in Copenhagen. Of course, it's based in Copenhagen. We live in Copenhagen because it's easiest for us, but we have freelancers across the entire country and we, uh, we try not to write too much about what is going on here compared to what is going on in, uh, in other parts of the country. We have, uh, of course, a strong readership in the big cities 
Nice, Copenhagen, Aarhus, Odense, Aalborg, the four big cities in, in Denmark. But we also know that, uh, that the smaller cities in Denmark, we have a really strong distribution there. Basically all supermarkets, kiosks, you can get Euromain because it's a mainstay on the magazine market on the shelves. And it's a really strong brand in Denmark, so everyone knows it. And we are trying our best not to become too exclusive and too sort of far away from the average Dane, if I can say that. These days, Christopher is working on expanding Euroman beyond the monthly issue, making the most of the strength of the brand on a national level. He's looking into everything from expanding the offering of seasonal newspapers to recording podcasts and shooting long-form videos. It's a matter of where we want to take our brand and no one is telling us where we should go. So it's it's just a matter of how big we want to dream it. And I mean, it could be a traveling club, it could be a, a supper club where we, uh, where we gather people to eat, it could be an event space, it could be a pop-up store. There's so many different areas where Euromain could play a role in the modern consumer's mind that should not only be a magazine, but could be so much more. From the newsroom of Euroman in Copenhagen, I'm Gabriele Delisanti. Thank you, Christopher. And Euroman is also featured in the new Monaco issue, which is out now. To Jakarta, I spoke this week with Januar Rianto, the program director of the upcoming Jakarta Art Book Fair, happening between the 30th of September and the 2nd of October in the city. The event will host 41 exhibitors from Indonesia, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Thailand. Januar tells me more about the event and about the publishing scene in Jakarta. This year will be our first art book fair, so I think we are still having like a lot of ideas or like a lot of sectors to 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 tap into, like also market to tap into. So Basically, in this year art book fair, we are like opening our doors to a lot of like genre or a lot of um, style in publishing. So in this year, among the 41 exhibitors, we'll have a diverse mix, a diverse mix of exhibitors. So ranging from artists, like individual artists, individual designers or a collective, artistic collective. And then also we'll have those from mainly literatures, publisher, you know, like publisher who does uh, philosophy or like who does like art, like very fine art writings and stuff. Also on the side, we'll have um, a several, I think I believe it's magazine as well, like independent magazine, independent. Also like we'll have uh, a Jakarta Zine Fest as well joining us in the fair. So we'll have one section um, dedicated for independent zine. So yeah, so this year will be uh, a diverse mix of exhibitors. I wonder if you could talk about some of those titles because I'm always curious to hear new titles from around the world. I'll be very interested. Do you have any personal favorites or any that you were involved in those titles? We, I mean, like, it's a lot of uh, exhibitors. So I think, but several that... Um, for me is interesting also there is a Jordan edition he'll be doing he'll be launching actually he'll be launching like around three titles or like two or three titles so one is about the this filmmaker and also another one is about like a photography 
photography book, but he packaged the book as a as a postcard series. And then also there is um, also like from our side, from Further Reading Press, we we are publishing two new titles. Like one is uh, about food, food and design publication called Surfing Suggestions. And also we are working with a street artist and children book artist to create a, a new zine together. And also like there will be several launch as well from Gang Kabel. It's called Gang Kabel, the publisher. He'll be uh, releasing two books. They're more like into literatures, like art literatures. One is about like an art collective in Indonesia back in the 60s. And also another one is actually a translated French philosophy book. Yeah, so I think, yeah, a lot of um, interesting new titles. I believe there are more, but I think they are the top of mind that like I can remember now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's a great, great selection. And where is the event taking place uh, uh, in Jakarta? Is it uh, quite a busy area? Just tell us. And, and perhaps can people go and, and visit as well? Or Ah, yeah, yeah. The, the event is taking place in uh, September 30 to 2nd of October. And it's um, taking place in a place in a compound, like a creative compound called M Block Space. It's a renovated government building. It's, yeah, so inside the compound, there are plenty of like FNB joints and also like creative halls and also like exhibition and stuff. And we are occupying one of their hall. And yeah, I think it's it's located in Jakarta Selatan. It's South Jakarta. And yeah, I think the event is open for public and it's also a, a ticketed event. So you have to uh, purchase a ticket to attend the, the fair. Do you think Indonesians in general or people in Jakarta, they are becoming more and more interested on art books, independent magazines, is it because you know it it is it is a big market. There's a lot of potential for growth, right? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, we we did a a smaller version of this book fair back in uh, twenty nineteen, and we only have around fifteen or fourteen exhibitors. And this year, we the the applicants surpass, I believe, surpass like fifty or sixties. And yeah, we only able to curate around uh, 40 of them. And I think the rising or the demand, I think also is increasing by looking at the, the growth of the independent publisher, independent magazines in, in, in the country, especially. That's fantastic. Uh, listen, Januar, good luck with the first Jakarta Art Book Fair and, and always a pleasure talking to you as well. Thank you, Fernando. Pleasure, yeah. Thank you, Januar. A reminder that the Jakarta Art Book Fair is happening between the 30th of September and the 2nd of October. For more info, go to their Instagram page, Jakarta Art Book Fair, all together. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at monaco.com. Before we go, a little song for you. Jean-Jacques Bonnel with Euro Man. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Sur ton
year round.